Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number seven. And in this episode, we were honored to have Robert Place join us. And if you don't know who Robert is, um, he's the author of the new book, The Tarot, Magic, Alchemy, Hermetism, and Neoplatonism. He's also written other books like The Tarot, History, Symbolism, and Divination. He's the designer of multiple very well-known tarot decks, such as the Alchemical Tarot, the Tarot of the Sevenfold Mystery, the Italian Renaissance Woodcut Tarocci, uh, the Tarot of the Saints, the Buddha Tarot, uh, Marziano Tarot, let's see, what else? Um, Raziel Tarot, the Burning Serpent, sorry, the Burning Serpent Oracle, um, and a few others. So it was a great conversation. Robert's a fun guy to talk to. So we hope you enjoy it. Okay, here we are with the interview. Mr. Robert Place has agreed to join us. Uh, Thank you, Robert, and welcome. Oh, thank you. It's our pleasure to have you here. Absolutely. Yep, and we have Janice as well. Well, thanks for inviting me. Hello, everyone. Okay, so we're going to just jump right into it. Um, We've got some questions for you, Robert. And you want to you want to start it off, Janice? All right. So the first question I want to ask you about her is about Hermes. You know, uh, right. Her- Hermes is a huge inspiration to us, and um, you know, our, this podcast is very much focused on Hermeticism and um, related streams of um, of knowledge. I've noticed that he's a figure who frequently emerges in your work. He's in a lot of your decks. Um, you have that newsletter, yeah. the Restored Temple of Hermes. I mean. It's just clear. Anybody yeah. who knows and loves your work, you definitely, you kind of give them props. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, can you speak on that a little bit? Um, you know, you, you even used to sell jewelry that was cast in his image. And uh, I actually regret not picking some of that up when I had the opportunity to. But um, do you consider him a guy? Well, I, I still have some pieces. I still have some pieces cast once in a while. Oh, awesome. Okay. So... You'd have, you have to come to the Reader's Studio in New York. I would love to do that. I'm, I will. So, Robert, is, do you consider him a guiding spirit? Like, what role has Hermes had in your life? Well, since I, I've been a little kid, you know, uh, I've always had this voice in my head um, telling me things. And uh, I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any name for him. And at a certain point, I started to realize that uh, he was Hermes. Uh, I think, well, the thing was, like, there was all this synchronicity that guided me to the alchemical tarot. And I'd get a voice in my head telling me to do things. And, and, and then I realized after I did the alchemical tarot that uh, Hermes is the god of alchemy. And that's why I was guided to alchemy. Uh, and so I said, you know, and more and more, you know, he's, the, he's not in the god of alchemy, but he's the bringer of dreams. And I've always, like, dream divination is my first form of divination and so like he's really the the dream maker like in a lot of cultures like you know Jung studied like certain uh, Native Americans that, that didn't even have gods or goddesses like the only close thing they had to a deity was this character they called dream dream maker and that's who Hermes is you know he like in ancient Greece he was the bringer of dreams and he's because he's when they say he's the messenger of the gods you know when you learn that in school you don't really fully understand it because the thing is that People in the ancient world believe that dreams were messages from the gods. Uh, that's so interesting. And, you know, I've actually seen it suggested that Morpheus is just a name for Hermes. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, or like, like, well, you can find similar um, characters in other religions and cultures. You know, like, you know, that's why Thoth, the Egyptian god, was, um, you know, associated with Hermes, and that's who became Hermes Trismegistus in Egypt when, when, uh, you know, uh, Hellenistic culture took over. And there's, and then there's the whole four element thing too, and how, you know, I. I noticed, for instance, on that um, playing card oracle you just made, the Hermes playing card oracle, on the four of um, four of spades, it has him on there. And yeah, I, yeah, I was trying to figure. See, the, if you notice, all the fours are gods and goddesses. Yes, I did notice that. Yeah. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out which suit was <laughs> was his, but I thought his spades fit him best. It's because because uh, you know the thing is, well, you know, did you see my Marziano tarot? Yes, I have it. Okay, so uh, uh, Her- Hermes or Mercury is associated with uh, the same suit as Zeus with the eagle suit, which is the virtue suit. And that would relate to swords and the tarot usually, which then which also relates to spades, you know, because, I mean, even though a spade, we think of it as sort of a shovel, but the thing is, it, the name comes from espada in Spanish, which means sword. Oh, that's very interesting. And then... um. So you kind of feel like he. So you've had this connection with him since you were a child. So he's kind of almost your tutelary spirit. Yeah, I I just didn't know what to call him. You know. <laughs> also, also he he's a god of like he's see he's a god of all kinds of things. Like they used to call him the good god. You know, he's the god of athletes because you know messengers used to, to have to run to deliver messages. So he's the god of runners and athletes and and that's you know I I try to. That's what I try to do to keep in shape. I mean, I'm, I I uh, use, I don't run, but I use a bicycle, which I'm sure if Hermes is around, you know, uh, he he lo- he would love to ride a bike, <laughs> because because uh, you know it's fast. Yeah, that's that's really man, that's really interesting, and it has two wheels that spin, and that's kind of caduceus like in a way. So I, yeah, or like or like like his wing sandals, you know. Well, and it's funny because it, it's it's funny because I noticed you know you did it. I thought it was really beautiful that you dedicated that book, your recent book, to your wife. And Hermes is, um, you know, there's there's some old monuments that show him with a female uh, deity called Rosmerta. And I yeah, that's in the Celtic in the Celtic countries. Yeah, and I noticed your wife's name is Roseanne. So I thought that was kind of funny because even in that regard, you're kind of. You're kind of living the art. Yeah, and, and you know, my partner on the alchemical tour was Rosemary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. I mean, the alchemical tarot is considered to be a landmark of um, in the development of the tarot. I mean, most people, most people who are serious about the tarot see that as a as an important development in the unfoldment of, of the of the tarot and it's, as it's grown and, and, and evolved. But I, you know, I want to ask oh, I'm you. Glad, what, I'm glad because that's how I see it. Yeah. That's yeah. It's it, now what inspired you to undergo it? I mean, how did that, how did that occur? I mean, I mean, it's, it's such a complete, it's such a complete deck. It's so, the symbolism is so integral and it, it really lives. Well, it, it, I think the deck just wanted to happen. <laughs> because the w- way it came about was like I had very little um, conscious uh, decision making at first. You know, it was like, um, see, the thing thing was that 
it was it was around the time of the harmonica versions. Whenever you know, I was and I was reading more and more books, and uh, ever since I got involved with Thoreau, I started reading and reading, and I started taking notes, and you know, and I was I was always an artist, I wasn't a writer, and so it was weird, you know, because I'm making all these notes about the things I'm seeing about the Thoreau and, and and making charts and seeing how things go together, you know, like as if I was a detective or working on some big mystery or something, and. Uh, you know, and I was supposed to be a jeweler, and I was, and my, but my jewelry store was getting filled up with books, going up to the ceiling, and in fact, people were starting to get worried about me <laughs> because this, why? You know, my wife said, "Why are you reading all the time? You're reading this stuff that nobody seems to understand." And um, <laughs> so, um, I, one day, I, you know, I heard on the radio that somebody was speaking about the harmonic convergence, and they were saying about that. People who are sensitive, there's got a lot going to be a flood of information coming to them. Who are sensitive to the spiritual world, and so I said, "Oh, well, geez, it actually, actually makes sense." Because I was sort of ignoring, you know, the, the whole idea of the harmonic conversion sound like something, but some new age thing people made up to sell books or something. And, um, <laughs> and then actually, somebody said something that made sense. I said, "Oh, you know, that actually is, is happening." Huh? So, um, I, so one day I was looking at this book, uh, the the picture history of uh, of. Uh, Alchemy and magic, and uh, and in, and there was this picture of uh, it was a stained glass window showing the philosopher's stone in alchemy. And the thing is, um, the philosopher's stone is nothing material; it's the stone that's not a stone. So it's not like you can actually draw a picture of it. So the way they so they usually depict it in symbolic form, and they and, and most often these are mandalas, like Western mandalas. Where uh, and, and typically taken the form of a quincunx. A quincunx is a, a design where there's an object in each of the four corners, representing the four elements, the four directions, the four the four uh, seasons. You know, the, the physical world that's defined by the by four. And then there's something in the middle that represents the spiritual space, the quinta essentia, as they would say, which means the essential fifth, or you know, also known as the fifth element or the, uh, the anima mundi, the soul of the world. And and I was looking at the design and how it had there was a cross and then the cross divided the background so the corners each had an image of, of the four elements you know like a, like a flame for fire and and some earth with flowers coming up for earth you know and um, and then in the center there was a heart and and then there was a, a wreath around it that was really a crown of thorns so it's like and the heart had five drops of blood and and I think well that's like the sacred heart right. But it's in the center of the four elements, and, on, and then the cross that see was dividing, you know, the world into the four directions, and then out of the heart was growing a rosebud. And I was thinking, you know, the tarot cards, like the world cards, got that same form, and the dancing woman. I was thinking about how similar it was to this Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, for for this one aspect of the soul they showed as a dancing woman with one leg up that way, and then how the heart was the symbol of the soul. And how, um, how like uh, how the symbols of the four evangelists in the corner on the world card are were related in medieval thinking to the four elements and the four directions, and they were basically the same thing, like it's basically a quincunx. And I just and it's sort of like that thought opened this like something in my mind, like a door hidden in my mind, and then uh, uh, and then there was like this epiphany. It's like I realized like wow, if the final card in the, of the trumps. Is connected to the world, to the, you know. The world card is connected to the um, symbol of the philosopher's stone, 
which is the the you know the goal of the great work of alchemy. Maybe the, all the cards could be describing the great work, and then it's just like this flood of images came out of that that passage in my back of my mind, and then I kept seeing all these images coming together of tarot cards and alchemical cards that I have been, um, alchemical images that I've been looking at, and I started to see how yeah, it all works. You know, this is happening in like a minute. I mean, it just flood you know just opened the floodgate. So I was blown away. So again, I was like, I want to tell everybody, I want to describe people and tell them, hey, you know, and people started suggesting, you know, you got to write this down because you just can't go around accosting people and telling them. <laughs> it's not the way you get your information out. So uh, uh, I, I started writing, writing it and, um, and, and I started working on the alchemical tarot. It all came together, like friends urged me to do it. So I started doing the drawings and then... Um, what, you know, so I, so I was reading all these different books on alchemy and Gnosticism, and, and as part of my background in information, and and one day I was in this health food store and I saw this uh, magazine called Gnosis, and I and I was thinking, gee, I just you know I'd just been reading about Gnostics. I didn't even before this I never even knew they existed, right? And here they got a magazine. You know, this is absurd. So. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I, you know, and again, a friend was with me. He said, "Aren't you going to buy that magazine?" And I, oh yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, okay. So I bought it, and I'm reading. I said, "This is a really good magazine," you know. And I said, "I bet they're going to do an issue on the tarot." So I had finished my a few cards, and I finished the the uh, the Siren of the Philosophers, which is the star card, which is the very first card I designed. So I I I did a made a Xerox of that uh, drawing, and I and I uh, put it in an envelope, and I wrote, wrote a little letter to the editor sent it off to San Francisco, and I said, you know, the, I, I, I'm working on this uh, tarot called the Alchemical Tarot, and I'm sending you the image from it, and, you know, to, and I explained the basic premise, and I said, this, you know, because I, I, you know, I want you to, I would like to have an article in your upcoming issue on the tarot, because back, in, see, what happened is when I looked at it, that voice in the back of my mind said, they're going to do an issue on the tarot, so I just believed they were, because basically that was Hermes talking to me, you know, because you're asking about how he, you know, how I interfered. You know, act with them. So, like, that's what happened. I had this voice in the back of my mind saying, they're going to do an issue on the tarot. Do this, send it off right away. So I, just, so I did. I listened, right? Okay, so then a week later, uh, 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 the editor uh, of Gnosis calls me up from San Francisco, and he says, why do you think we're doing an issue on tarot? We're not doing an issue on tarot. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but what, so why'd you call me? So he said, "Well, actually, I'm doing an issue on the goddess. It's the thirteenth issue, and and I, I, this is a perfect illustration for this uh, article about Sophia. And I want you to write a one-page article to go with the illustration. So see, it arrived just at the right time when they just fit wow. in the magazine. So, but see that, but see, Hermes, true to form, he lied to me to get me to do it because if he explained the whole <laughs> thing to me, I wouldn't believe him. Hey, Robert, Robert." Oops, sorry. Do do you think that the tarot has its own intention? That it 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 has it's almost like an entity? Because you had spoken before about how um, in dreams the tarot had had found you, so to speak, and in different ways it almost seems like the tarot develops um, in its own way. In well, you know, it's not the, exactly the tarot, but what's behind it. You know, you, you, like the tarot is a tool for something bigger, and the right. thing that's bigger has its own intention. That's so, the way I look at it, anyway. So maybe it's it's Hermes. So, yeah, or I mean, yeah, I guess you could say it's Hermes. Well, like the, the original Hermetic material, uh, you know, they used to you know they used to write all these philosophical texts and sign that Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes Thrice Great, uh, to show that he was the Egyptian Hermes, right? Because like Thoth had this, um, you know, you wouldn't just say Thoth; you'd say 
Toth, the one, the only, the greatest, you know, I mean, he's in, you know, be like, you know, the God, the good God, the great, you know, like an Egyptian, there was a, had to have a title. You couldn't just say, you know, it's almost like now when they, they like I listen to the news and and somebody, you know, somebody's talking from a state and they go, here's the representative from the great state of Georgia. They can't just say the state anymore. Right. <laughs> well, that's what they used to do with the gods, you know, and here's the great God, you know, Hermes, right? But, they, but Hermes, they had to do it three times. So that's why your story is great. So they were showing that the, their Hermes is thought whose story is great, and that's the same thing, right? And so, but they would sign all their, te- they were writing all these books on philosophy and then signing it with his name. So then people now look at it and go, well, they were just lying, right? <laughs> because they're not Hermes, what are they talking about? But, but see, it, that was really common in the ancient world because they were feeling that this stuff was so profound that it wasn't just them saying it, they were channeling it. Some, you know, it's almost what you're saying, like there's something bigger that had to come through them. Mm-hmm. which is kind of like what you do with your art yeah and see and then it was like sometimes you know because i'm i would work really hard on the drawings like i drew them in pen and ink and um at first and then and then um like the well, you know when we got a contract from harper collins uh they gave me a year to finish and it took me two years so that you know and this is the, i mean it was really nuts because like publishers don't usually do that they don't give you an extra year because, you know, like they have a schedule, they're going to keep doing it. It's costing them money because, like, you know, you're not on schedule. And and people are hired to do things that they're not doing, and you know. But I kept sending in the artwork as I was finishing. And I go, wow, this is really great. Okay, just take your time, you know. <laughs> and then, so I thought that's the way it always was. But afterward, I, I, I was, you know, found out that's not the way publishers work. <laughs> I was spoiled. <laughs> so, uh, so, again, it was like this thing where the deck wanted to happen. It even affected the publisher. And how many decks have you done? What is it? Twelve? Uh, maybe something like that. I mean, it's hard. It's, well, it's hard to say what you see because every time when I change the Alchemical Throne, I'm on the. I did like the fourth edition. Now is that a new right. deck or is that the same deck or you know? And right. then when I did the Sevenfold Mystery, I usually came out with an annotated version. So is that another deck or is that the same deck or? So it's, it's hard for me to give it a definite number. Got it. You know, but yeah, it's like twelve, thirteen, something like that. You know, and uh, so. Uh, well, it, well, the thing, okay, the thing was too with the Gnosis magazine. See, that was like that article was really synchronicity in itself because what happened then is that Rosemary Ellen Guiley saw the article, and and then she got in touch with me because she was writing a book on the tarot, and so that came out just at the right time. And then she asked me to put a couple of pictures in her book on the mystical tarot and write a, a brief, uh, you know, section for the book for her. And then I I worked as a ghostwriter for her. And and then and then she said, you know, I'll, I'll help, you know, if you take me in as a partner on the alchemical tour, I'll help you get a contract because, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of time. I was working on jewelry and I didn't have a lot of time to work. And she said, if you want to get more time, you need to get a, an advance from a publisher. So I'll show you how to write a contract. So we did. And then we got the contract from HarperCollins, which was weird. See, I had a lot of friends who were... Uh, Writers and they're getting nowhere. They're hard to get. It was hard to get published. And I was an artist, and I was like, "Oh wow, I'm writing a book, and uh, I got this contract from Harper Collins." And they were like really pissed at me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's amazing <laughs> how that came together. Well, that's her. Yeah, and too, like, he's the Lord of Commerce. Yeah, well, and then even now, you know, just the other day, this young writer asked me how do you, how I got started, and he wants me to help him out. And I said, "Well, I don't know if the way I got started is going to help you, <laughs> because you know." It, it, it sort of like it happens. It wasn't, you know, and you hear that a lot. Like when you hear like actors are very successful. So, oh, man, I just lucked out. I, you know. Well, and with the uh, on the point of the alchemical tarot. Now, 
the another you know the Wade Smith Tarot uh, that you know you've you've talked uh, you talked on a few occasions and you've written also about the pretty amazing dream you had um, with when the that. Tarot first came to me. Yeah, could, would you mind just? I know you covered this ground before, but it's. I know I said it so many times. <laughs> like every book, I mention it because it's sort of like like okay, this is my hook to get people to see where I'm coming from. You know. And I hate uh, to get you. I hate to make you repeat it, but w- would you would you mind going into it for a minute? Just it's such a. Yeah. Cool okay. So so I I basically this I think it was um, 1982 during the summer I had a dream. As I told you before, my main form of divination was dream divination. So I always paid attention to my dreams. For a while, I kept a dream journal and would and 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 watched what my dreams did and saw how they predicted the future. And uh, which is exactly what ancient people always believed that dreams predict the future. And I would so I did this experiment of do my dreams and I'm checking to what happened. So they were predicting the future very often. Um, but dreams also respond to. I mean, they respond to almost anything. I mean, I've had dreams that tell me how to my computer was broken and I had a dream told me how to fix it. So uh, they could do all different things, do whatever you need really. But this dream was a startling dream because I was, see, I was in the middle of a regular dream that was predicting the future. <laughs> so, um, I was following this woman who I knew from, well, I used to, I told you I made jewelry and I sold at craft shows. And this is another jeweler from the craft shows. And I saw her on the street and I was following her in this red brick building. And I found out later that's because she was going to become a promoter and I was going to end up doing her shows. Uh, so the dream was predicting that. Now the thing is, in the I walk into the living room uh, in this building, and she's walking off in the other room, and then there's a telephone table with a telephone on it. Now, now this is one of those um, black telephones with the handle on top and a dial, like they used to have back then. And uh, and it rings, and and back then when the phone rang, you used to actually answer it. Now I, I just let it go to the answer machine usually, but back then you actually used to pick up the phone. Right. <laughs> So when the phone rang, it was like, oh, wow, somebody's calling me. And it was like, uh, I didn't know somebody could call in the dream. This is like it interrupted the dream. Like it was so obvious. It was like a message coming from outside my normal conscious. It had nothing to do with the dream. Just somebody interrupting like the way a phone call would interrupt you in the middle of the day. I've had the dead do that. What's that? I've had the dead do that in dreams. Oh, really? With the dead, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you're going to have to tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like a psychic metaphor, I think, because the telephone. Yeah, is- well, it's obvious, right? When you think about the symbol. Yeah. A distant connection with some, someone. Well, that's kind of what well, happened I- with you, right? Yeah, well, that was it. So the thing is, uh, I pick up the phone, and the, the, this dream operator said she had a person to person call <clears throat> from England for Robert Place, and what I accepted. So I accepted it. And uh, then she put a, a this woman on who was a secretary at a dream law firm. And she told me I had an inheritance coming from an ancestor in England, and it was very powerful. And that because my ancestors had misused it in some way, if I accept this this inheritance, I also have to take on some of the karmic debt that came with it. So I, without even thinking, I just said, "Oh, sure," because <laughs> you know, if you thought about it, I said, "Wait a minute, what's the karmic debt?" But uh, I, 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 in the dream, I was like, "Oh, wow, I'm going to inheritance. Oh, great. Okay, good, sure." So, um. Then I said, "Well, what is it? How do I know it?" And she said, "Well, you'll you'll know it when you see it. It comes in a box from England. And it's called the key." And and then so when I woke up in the morning, it was so this dream was so vivid and it was so lucid that like I woke up and you know just sat right up in bed, looked at the foot of the bed, expecting a box to be there. 
and my wife's looking at me like, what are you doing? And I told her about the dream and how <laughs> powerful it was. And I thought, I thought the box would be here. I said, wow, that's really powerful. So, but the weird thing was, see, within a day or so, my friend Scott came over. A friend has had mailed the Wade Smith cards to him. And um, I was sitting at my kitchen table. This is when I lived in New Jersey. And and the thing, the uh, door, there was an outside door to my left in the kitchen. And, he, and it was like the back door of the house. And he and Scott came up and just sort of knocked on the door and walked in because we're, we're close friends. And um, he was holding his deck. And my head turned without me. It wasn't like I was in control of my head. It just turned. And my eyes focused on the deck. And I went, oh, that's it. Like the dream said, you'd know it when you see it. So like my unconscious took over and made me look at it. And so I'd know it. And, it's, and and then he said, you know, this person sent me this tarot deck and I wanted to show it to you. So we're looking at it and I said, you know, I had a dream about this. I think I'm supposed to get one of these. So we, so we had a good time looking at it and playing around with it. And then in, and then with a few days, my friend Ed, who is an astrologer, came over and he had a, a Marseille deck. And he says, I have this deck I don't use, but something told me I'm supposed to give it to you. <laughs> Assuming it was Hermes. So he, so he gave me the deck. So now I had a tarot deck to play with. And not like, I mean, I knew what a tarot deck was since I was in college, just I didn't have one. So, um, I mean, even in college, I tried to start making a deck one time. I got it done with about four cards and it gave up because of so much work. <laughs> so, um, do you feel like, anyway, it, so, do you feel like it was the that? artist? Do you feel like it was the artist within you, which, which made it, which made you able to put the, connect the dots? Cause a lot of people wouldn't have even, recognize those those signs was it because well, i didn't have any i it wasn't i don't know what it was i mean my unconsciousness did it <laughs> the uh i mean my head turned it wasn't even my it was under my control so i don't know i mean i i i know that being an artist makes you very visual and i was always interested in symbolism so i mean it's all connected right um but see the thing is most people don't realize that their unconscious is in control of them. They think that your ego makes you think your ego is in control and that you're consciously in control of your life, but you're really not. So true. So what all this did is prove to me that I wasn't in control consciously, but I was in control unconsciously. Like the, the, the unconscious part of my mind was more powerful and really calling the shots. See, and and it's really it's interesting because I have a friend in the gym, you know, where I work out. Like, and and he was he was talking about how uh, animals. Well, animals aren't like people because they they you know they do things on instinct. And I said, well, so do people. And 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 then he and he didn't quite understand. And then I said, well, do you think you consciously decided to get married and have have a a, a son, or is there something in you that drove you to do that? that we might call instinct and that and then you and then your your thinking part is just how you work it out mm -hmm. and you go oh yeah you're right you know like so I, when i said it to him that way then he said oh that's really obvious because right. you know, because people pe you know so he says so he says so when when um the geese fly south are they is it like the same kind of thing where they're just driven to it because they think it's really cool <laughs> you know well, and you know, Jung said that instinct and intuition were actually kind of two poles or two forms of the same prompting from the unconscious. Yeah, right, right. 
I mean, and, and see, as I work with the tarot, it got be more obvious. Like, I talk about that even more in my new book, like some of the experiences I had. Because the synchronicity oh, just kept happening and happening and happening. Anybody listening, if you if you haven't gotten this book, you, you really, really should. It's, it's excellent. Um, even for just the, the chronicles of some of your experiences alone, I mean, it's really fascinating. I want to ask you, though, going back to Wade, uh, the Wade Smith tarot, um, we know, you know, he, he integrated alchemical symbolism into his deck, but, but not necessarily in the, as overt and direct as you did. Um, did his deck influence your creation of the alchemical tarot? I mean, or do you Yeah, yeah, but I, I, see, the thing is, I, he, definitely the first, like, the first deck that I was involved with was the, the Wade Smith deck, which was what Scott brought over. And then I went out and bought my own copy. So I had the Marseille deck and the Wade Smith deck. So those two decks, which I considered, like, the standard for most people, um, uh, the decks I first used and worked with. Now, um, the thing is, Wade's deck, I, I, from researching it, I feel that a lot, of, a lot of the symbolism was really created by Pamela Cohen Smith, and Wade gets undue credit. Like he was mostly concerned with with the um, the, the uh, Trumps, you know, what people call the Major Arcana, and um, even there he misinterprets. When you read his book, he misinterprets Pamela's drawings. Like he's, he's talking about things that are in the drawing that aren't even there. Like he's not really looking at the pictures. So she she really created the deck. She designed. It. He hired her to design it. The very first thing ever written about it in the in the magazine that came out. You know, a writer had a magazine called, uh, I think it was the Occult Review or something. And and when the, the issue came out in 1908, when the deck was just, it was just before Christmas when the deck first came out, the editor of the magazine uh, wrote an article about the deck and he just said, oh, now it says it was designed by Pamela Collins Smith and that how she did the research on the antique decks, and how she did extensive research. So I, I, and then later, you know, so many writers just say, oh, wait, designed it, which is absurd. That, that doesn't fit the def. What he did does not fit the definition of the word design. Well, it has a lot of golden dawn symbolism in it too. I mean, from the book. Yeah, but she was, but she she learned from him and he influenced her, right? But she designed the deck. And and it, and it, like the thing is, what, but the, but what's happening with the Trumps is that uh, it it's it express now that's where he had the most influence and what he's what he wanted her to express is his his vision, for sure. That's that seems pretty obvious, and and because you know he even had other artists work on it and came up with similar uh, images. So the thing is, um, it, it's a it's a mystical vision that Waite had. That's a combination of uh, alchemy and the Grail legend and Celtic mythology, and that that and and, and it's like he, he he's basically a Christian mystic, and that yeah. he thought that all these things were expressing a, a Christian mysticism of of, of enlightenment. And and that's what he wanted to express. So so it's sort of like an amalgam of all these things. So it has alchemy in the mix. You see. Oh, but yours is. But I mean, it's so clear with the alchemical tarot. Yours is straight. I mean, you just took alchemy, and. Yeah, I just tried to make it make it based on the alchemical great work. Now the thing is, the original tarot is actually the thing that's being expressed isn't supposed to be the alchemical great work. It's just that it parallels it, just like weight thought. I was just about to ask you about that. I was going to ask you how the two, how alchemy and tarot are related. Yeah, well, because alchemy was was one. See, the thing is, 
the Tarot was a, uh, the Trumps are expressing a, a mystical philosophy in the form of a parade called a triumphi in the Renaissance. So let's right. see, that's what, so they basically were capturing. They were just called cards, you know, cards with a triumph added. The triumphi is just that's where the word Trump comes from in the first place because it comes from triumphi, which is just means triumph. And that was the type of parade they had in ancient Italy, and that artists would work on this parade, uh, uh, the symbolism. So, so they had them all the time, and like every major city-state in Italy, because Italy wasn't a country, so every city-state would have these major parades because they were all the capital of their own area, and 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 they'd have them for, they'd have them before Lent, like sort of like a Mardi Gras parade, and they'd have them for special occasions and. Uh, and and artists would work on the symbolism of the parade. The whole point of the parade was that each character triumphs over the one that came before, or trumps the one that came before. So uh, so it's a natural way to create a hierarchy of images from the lowest to the highest. And then artists would make use of that hierarchy to express mystical philosophies, like we see that with uh, Petrarch's *E Triumphi* and as you see in Bruegel's uh, *Triumph of Time* uh, engravings that he did. And uh, you know many many others. Like if you go, if you go to Italy, you'll find triumphal images on on wedding chests, on the back of portraits. I mean, there's, well, it's interesting uh, too because you still see that in Italian communities in the diaspora in America with like the church festivals where they'll they'll they do that same tri triumph. Yeah, right. It's, it's it's related. Yeah. You know, I, I was just at one for Saint uh, Saint Anthony, and that's basically what it was because you have Anthony at the back, you have a band. You have the priest, yeah, you have see, like the Knights yeah. of Columbus. So it is, a, you're right, it is a triumph. And I never connected the two that way before. It's really interesting. Yeah, so that's what the Tarot is. It's a triumph. And the triumph uh, was, but the triumph was uh, expressing uh, mystical philosophy about what is most important, going to the, this mystical vision of the, of the soul of the world. Because the world card isn't, I mean, it's a shortened title, because really what it's showing with the quincunx design is the anima mundi, or the soul of the world which is the same thing that the Philosopher's Stone was made out of in alchemy. So so a lot of this imagery would be connected to alchemy because that was just the way people expressed themselves in the 1400s in Italy. And well, I, and I was like, you know, like today, you know, how, how many people use psychological terminology to express themselves, right? But they're not all psychologists. True, true. It's just part of our language now, right? So the same thing, like they weren't all alchemists, but the thing, but they used alchemical imagery because it was just, it was just, part of the time it's kind of funny you say that because when you said that it occurred to me like in both cases you could see the influence of hermes at work in culture yeah yeah well well see that hermes is sort of like the like the basic um the basic deity who's like that that element of the unconscious that comes through to you in any culture, like like uh, it's what it's what's, what what the religious impulse is based on. Because without That's the message from from the other side, how would you even know it existed? It's true. Now you now the, you just led into one of our questions actually, which was um, about the you you described the world card as Sophianic in nature. Really, you're you know you're talking about yeah. the kind of or Sophia. Who exactly is Sophia, and how does the tarot? Well, Sophia is a Jewish Christian concept okay for the anima mundi you, you see, see what i mean like i like um sophia is greek it just means wisdom in greek 
but it's the embodiment of wisdom that in, in uh, like like see, like the thing is most of the Jews who lived in Alexandria, which there were more Jews living in Alexandria than in Israel, um, you know what's now Israel um, in the ancient world, and and the thing is um, they they spoke Greek. So the first, like the first translation of the Bible in the Greek was the Old Testament, which was translated in the Greek for the Jews living in Alexandria because they they didn't speak Hebrew, they couldn't read Hebrew. So so they had this concept of the female aspect of God in the world, and they called it Sophia, and then and that entered into Christianity. In fact, in in the Catholic Church, there's a Saint Sophia, and the Saint Sophia is believed to have had three daughters, and they were named Faith, Hope, and Charity. Which of course are the three Christian virtues, but it, the, the 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 worship of Sophia was was really much more pronounced in uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, especially in Russia, where the, like Sophia was the, uh, you know many many Christian mystics had visions of Sophia, but but the thing is, um, she she's sort of a Christianized aspect of something that's broader than Christianity, because like the Anima Mundi is the same concept. Uh, that's broader, and you see, find that in Hermeticism and alchemy, and you know, because alchemy is, is pretty Christian originally. Now, and, for and, people and, listening to this podcast who might not be totally familiar with the term, um, what exactly is the Yanni Mamundi? Okay, it, it just means uh, soul world, right? Anima, soul. See, uh, uh, you know, like, you know how many women are named Anne or Anna or. Yes. You, you see. Yeah, okay, well, the origin comes from Anna, which is an ancient goddess name, like, you know, Diana, right, Diana. Um, like, if you go back, like, the like the early Mediterranean cultures, almost ubiquitously have this goddess figure where she's got two animals, one on each side, and then and they're facing into her, and she's either holding them by the scruff of the neck, or they're just coming to her, and, and they just call her the mistress of the animals. But her, her basic name would be Anna. You see, and that's what Diana is, because then you see, like later, like in archaic Greek, base, you see she's become Diana, the goddess of the hunt. Um, but that's why animals are called animals, because the root is Anna, which means soul. So, like in Latin, uh, animus is, wow. is, you know, anima anonymous. Like animus would be masculine, and anima would be feminine, right? So, um, of course, psyche is is uh, soul in Greek, but um, again, it's feminine. But basically, mostly you know, referred to as feminine. So these figures represent the soul, or the, or what we might call Mother Nature, or uh, the goddess, you know, the mother goddess. Uh, they're ubiquitous all all over the ancient world. And then they, and then so many aspects of them came into Christianity in different forms, like as Mary, the mother of God. So she she got a lot of the titles, you know. Uh, in fact, the whole cult of Mary was borrowed from Greece because. It wasn't really part of Catholicism originally until the, uh, until uh, there was, uh, you know, mystical influences coming from uh, Greece that that came in the 1300s, started influencing Western Europe. And then you start seeing all these cathedrals, Notre Dame, the Great Lady. And then, uh, you know, Mary became more and more and more prevalent, which became this focus for this goddess energy. So um, the Anima Mundi is all those aspects, Sophia, Mary, uh Mary Magdalene, uh, you know, there, it's all different culture, Christi, Christianized cultural interpretations of this ancient mistress of the animals, uh, who's Mother Nature or like the, the soul of the world. So 
So, so see, like, for instance, in alchemy, the basic tenet of alchemy, one of the, the first rules uh, is that everything in the world is alive. Everything in the universe is alive. So, like, in modern, like, you know, I have a, a book here on biological chemistry, you know, a textbook, and, it's, and it starts off like the, the, the writer saying, but it's very hard for my students to get it across that all life comes from non-living matter. You see, so it's like in modern scientific thinking, okay, everything's dead, but somehow chemicals interact and then it creates life. To the alchemical thinking, everything's alive in the first place. So that's a big separation between modern science and alchemy. And that, and that aliveness is anima or soul. Because the definition of uh, life to the ancients was that it's self-moving. In other words, animated, which again is you know, root is soul, anima. So, uh, if you, modern physics has basically shown us that everything's animated all the time, right? I mean, sub, subatomic particles are whizzing around and. Right, right. That I mean, nothing's, nothing's stagnant. What? That even goes back to the Corpus Hermeticum. It describes how um, God sets the universe into motion. Yeah, right, right. In motion's life. You see, that's yeah. why they said the. You know, like the quick and the dead, you know, because like death, what death means is you can't move. <laughs> that is, that's so, that's such an interesting, interesting description. Uh, that, that was awesome. Um, so <clears throat> speaking of Alexandria, um, I want to talk about the Ptolemaic worldview. Um, I'm kind of an archaic person. It's, I, I kind of live in that worldview, so I'm not. So I'm asking this almost as a devil's advocate, but you know, what is the Ptolemaic Ptolemaic worldview, and do you think it's still valid? You mean their, their vision of the cosmos? Yeah. Do you think it's a valid? Do you think it's valid in this era, in this age? Well, it's, it's not scientifically valid because it's been proven to be wrong. Right. But the thing is, it's it's what it's it's an I think it's an observation of a psychic reality. I know this, what, what they're really showing are the soul centers, which we, in modern. Uh, New Age thinking, we usually refer to as the chakras, but the ancients would call them the soul centers. And we find that, you know, we find in the writings of Pythagoras, well, I mean, there's no writings from Pythagoras, but the writings about Pythagoras, um, that Pythagoras um, believed that there were there were uh, seven planets that encircled the Earth with the Earth in the center, and that these each were on a crystal sphere, and that because of the mathematical ratios between the planets, they could be described as musical notes. And that's how he created the Western scale with seven musical notes. And he created a, a, a lyre, a harp, um, with seven strings to capture the notes, and it's called a cathara. It's actually the ancestor of the guitar, interestingly. I've just you know seen people research that lately. And um, the... Uh, he would he would tune so he would tune his cathar to to the perfect harmony of the spheres the music of the spheres and and then um, he would see that these spheres were echoed in the body in seven soul centers and then when people were were sick or out of whack he would tune them to his his uh, cathar and heal them now this is written about in Iamblichus's uh, biography of Pythagoras you know back in uh, the second century A D. Um, which is earlier than any writings about the, um, uh, you know, or as a, you know, it's it's hard to say. In India, there's nothing about the chakras before that. 
And, um, you know, maybe the earliest writings might be around the same time. It's hard to say which is first. But the thing is, going back to Pythagoras is living in the 6th century B.C., the same time as, as uh, Gautama Buddha. And uh, so so it seems like this, this system was in the East and West all at the same time. And that, like, our ancient philosophers um, were very closely connected to, to this same thing. Well, that it, goes it's back weird. to... Well, go on. What were you going to say? I was going to say that goes back to Alexandria too, because in Alexandria you had Indian Brahmins, Buddhist monks, you know. Oh, you right. Had, this is mixing pot, but this is good. We're going way, you know, before Alexandria ever happened. You know, Pythagoras is around centuries before that, so like Robert, three centuries earlier. Sorry, Robert. So we're we're talking about the the chakras and Pythagoras. Can you talk about a little bit the the soul centers readings that you do? That was seems like was inspired by this. Oh yeah, well that's it. So I read this in Amicus where uh, how Pythagoras would heal people uh, by harmonizing their soul centers, right? And I said, well, gee, that would be probably the best thing I could do with the tarot because I, to me, predicting the future is sort of a useless thing. And like, I don't find the tarot is very good at predicting the future. Uh, it, it can show you, it shows you about the present and what's happening, and um, and helps you, it helps you see the direction things are heading, you know, in the present. And, and 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 it allows you to maybe to change course and make better decisions. But the best predictions of the future I ever have are in dreams. When I don't, you know, when they just come to me, I don't call them. You know, it's, it's it's very hard for me to like consciously predict the future. But I can. But my dreams will just predict the future. Just boom. You know, like don't even ask for it. And it just happens. So uh, so so I just I thought well you know so, so it's probably not the best use for other trying to predict the future. So I said well, what could I do with it? What would be the best thing to do with it? I thought, well, healing would be probably really useful. Um, and and I had taken a psychic healing course, you know, w- 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 uh, with Dr. Shirley Winston in New York, and she had started the same thing, like because they, they wanted to. They, she was ba- she based the work on her work on. Uh, she studied with Larry Lachance, who wanted to study psychic phenomena, and they, and he felt that the best pro- probably use of studying psychic phenomena was trying to do healing, because you know, it wasn't just a curiosity, then you might actually do something good, right, and help people. So I thought, okay, well, that's what I want to do with the tarot. I want to help people. I want to cure them. So I worked out this um, reading where I put out, lay out three cards for each of the seven soul centers. And and it's not just a matter of reading the cards, but you, but you feel the energy in each one, and you can find out where there's blocks. And then you read the cards to find out why the blocks are there. And then and then you use the cards creatively to help change the energy and, and you know, move the energy around and, and try to get it. Uh, Get, kill people basically you know like people have told me it's worth like six months of psychotherapy wow is this, is this something you teach or is it just something uh... yeah I'm, i do teach it once in advanced classes it's not something like i see the thing is i'm always like at the open center where i teach regularly i'm always teaching the beginning class because otherwise you never get enough students to make for the place to make money so it's only when i can do an advanced class that i can teach this got it Man, that's... It's, it's going, but but it's, but you see, if you read my book, I mean, you know, the, everything. I mean, everything's in my book, so you could just, you know, read the book and figure it out for yourself, probably. Well, <laughs> just practice. Seven, I mean, it's all about practicing. Speaking of seven, you did, you know, you another landmark tarot you made was the tarot of the sevenfold mystery, which seems to be centered around this whole concept you're discussing right now. With, I mean, it illustrates. Yeah, that, yeah, that's you, what it's based on. Yeah. And, and it also seems to illustrate, you know, there's Gnostic aspects to it. 
there's hermetic and there's neoplatonic aspects to it. Yeah. Well, the thing, see, the thing is with the with the Gnostic aspects is um, Gnosticism was what they call pessimistic, in that they believe that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. <laughs> Where in a pure hermeticism, like in alchemy, the physical world is not bad. The physical world is good and can trans, but but it wants to transform into its, its spiritual higher self. Like the point of all life is to go, to keep growing and being your best self. So there's nothing wrong with the physical world. It's just it's in a process. You see, whereas like Gnostics act like oh well the world's evil and I have to get to the other place. I think that's the, one of the main differences between the philosophy. But you see, it's interesting because in Plato you sort of find both aspects. Like like some statements from Plato seem to be saying, well, that we'll we're we're really in the underworld right now, and this is a horrible place, and you've got to get to a better place. And other things are saying, oh no, no, the thing is that you know desire is is good, and desire drives you on to better and better things. Like like when you read the symposium. So so Neoplatonism is see Plato was probably the most influential philosopher in the ancient world, and he was heavily influenced by Pythagoras. And now the see one of the interesting things is like I was telling you how Pythagoras lived at the same time as Buddha, and he taught that we are on, we are all on an endless wheel of reincarnations, and that to get off of it you have to practice uh, um, a type of meditation or contemplation and virtue. That's which is the same thing Buddha taught, right? So here, so here they are, east and west, teaching the same thing around the same century, and uh, in the same century, and. Um, yet we, you know, when I talk about Pythagoras to my students, most people know him as a mathematician. They know the Pythagorean theorem. Uh, more astute people know him as a philosopher, but hardly anybody knows him as a Buddha, which is, he is our Western Buddha. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people, ancient, ancient people believed he was enlightened, you know. He, he, was high, he was highly revered and he was considered to be, I mean, you know, mythically he was considered to be a, a Son of a deity, like a, a you know. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, well he, he, that's why he was named Pythagoras after Pythian uh, uh, Apollo. Yeah, yeah. From well, what was the, the the Oracle of Delphi? You know, announced to his father that he was, that Pythagoras was going to be born, and that's why his father named him after the Oracle. Well, and it just seems to me like something did happen to you because I, you know, I. I've had a number of your decks over the years, um, and uh, I've noticed that, like for instance, you did the Tarot of the Buddha, and yeah, and, and you seem to—it's like I could tell it just clicked for you. You could see how the archetypal pattern in the life of Siddhartha mirrored the the fool's journey of the Tarot. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Once I once I understood the pattern. Like I was trying to see from the beginning, I wanted to know, okay, where did this deck come from? Who are the people who created it, and what were they thinking? And what I discovered is most of the books out when I started studying the tarot, most of the books out were nonsense. They just didn't have any clue about the history. Um, then you know I started finding ones that did, and uh, and as I could pin it down better and better, and then look at the artwork at the time in the 1400s in Italy when it was created, you could see that there was similar 
there's other there's artwork from other sources that were similar to the images in this row, and you could see the, what the artwork meant in, as it was presented in the 1400s, and so you knew what those images meant in the tarot, and and see how it came, came together. So the big secret is that the tarot was created in the 1400s by artists, <laughs> which you know because because a lot of people know like you can read books now and, uh, that you know, people know that they it didn't come from ancient Egypt. Like a lot of the books originally said all oh, the cards came from ancient Egypt, but that's not true. So now the books realize that there's no history of the tarot before Renaissance Italy. Um, but what the people still act like, oh, but it was it must have been created by uh, some magical school or by a particular magician or by Kabbalists, and it's Kabbalistic, and it's and none of that stuff's accurate to the early tarot. That stuff was added later by occultists. So um, who created the tarot? Artists created the tarot. They had to. It's a work of art. But artists in the Renaissance were very astute to mystical ideas that they were. They be, see in the art, the artwork in the Renaissance had to have body and soul, as they said. See, like when I studied art back in college in the '60s, it was abstract expressionism was the thing, and they said, you know, basically, uh, in Renaissance thinking, art had. They were saying art had body, but they didn't care about soul because they didn't want any literary, you know, and it was all about formal elements and the abstract beauty of the composition. But it wasn't supposed to say anything literary. In fact, if you said art was literal, sort of a put down, which seemed weird because all Renaissance art was literal. You know, they go, well, that's just illustrative. But then all art before was illustrative, you know, so why are you putting it down? You're telling me that Michelangelo and Leonardo were great geniuses, but then you, then if somebody does that now, that they're an idiot. So, um, uh, I, 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 I sort of revolted against that. And as an artist, I always consider myself an illustrator. And and then I, I realized that I fit right in with the Renaissance, the way of thinking. So that the, the art would kind of have a soul, which was the literary element, which was a, a philosophical, mystical message that was really important. So artists were imbued with, with putting messages in their artwork. That's why the Tarot has a message and why it's based on a parade that had a message. And you know, the phrase weren't always the same, but they always had a mystical message. Well, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, before we can actually see the real Egyptian influences in the Tarot, you have to, we have to dismiss this myth of it coming from ancient Egypt. And then you can right, see... Right, because Hermeticism comes from Egypt and Hermeticism was being revived in the Renaissance. Right, it, it kind of produced the Renaissance in a lot of ways. So, I mean, Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. If you read the Golden Ass by Apuleius, or Apuleius, if you read yeah. if you read the Golden Ass, it has a description uh, when he gets turned back into a human being after all these travails of a of a triumph. He he gets pulled into the triumphal parade of Isis, and um, and he uh, you know he he's literally participating in an Egyptian tr triumphal parade, which is kind of neat because in a way, if you look at that and you realize. You know, you read about it, the Egyptians were doing these, these, these triumphi, these these processions, these religious processions, and and then here, here that that continued in a different form later, and then was probably you know influenced by the Renaissance aspect. And then when you're talking about the alchemical thoughts, and you were talking about how matter is alive, I mean, you know that alchemy has roots in ancient Egyptian Egyptian ideas too. So when we get past the the sort of false narrative, then we can get to the roots of 
how there still is that influence. Yeah, you can see how it connects. And Well, also, artists in themselves keep a lot of things alive because art's always influenced by other art that came before. So it's almost like playing telephone. You know, they'll keep, they keep passing on things from one to another. So a lot, like a lot of a lot of Christian iconography is based by uh, based on ancient Egyptian iconography because the artist copied it. Like you know, like the Madonna, Madonna image is based on Isis with Horus in her lap, and, and, uh, and well, the thing is, the cult of Isis during the Roman Empire, the cult of Isis wasn't it, it wasn't confined to Egypt; it spread all through the Roman Empire. It, it was actually the main contender in competition with Christianity. Because a lot of people think about Mithraism, but I think Mithraism was mostly uh, influential among the army soldiers, but the, the cult of Isis was spread all over. And they found, like, you know, temples of Isis in, in England from ancient Roman times. So, it was, so uh, you could see it was everywhere in the empire, and they would have these processions. So people were really familiar with Isis. And then Osiris... Uh, was uh, you know uh, transformed into Serapis, the god Serapis, which was a combination of uh, Osiris and the Apis bull. And uh, but the image, but the image of him, if you see images of Serapis, you'll see he looks exactly like Christ. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's got he's got a you know the, the beard and the long hair and that intense stare, and he looks like some of the earliest icons of Christ were obviously based on Serapis. And then you know, uh, and then also there was a, a priest. Uh, uh, who represented Anubis, who would be in the procession. He would wear a dog's uh, head, like a, a mask of a dog. And then you see, he got transformed into, into St. Christopher, and the earliest icons you see has a dog's head. And, you know, you can go on and on like this. I mean, so, like there's all these influences uh, from ancient Egypt. I mean, Osiris himself is, dies and, re, and is reborn like Christ. So, the, and, and, and then... Uh, I mean, there's, there's like a lot of the prayers were based on Egyptian prayers. Like, on and on and on. There's lots of influences. It's really interesting. So, so the artists in particular kept it going. Um, with your burning, with the burning serpent oracle, you actually have Isis in it. You you have her uh, very present in that deck. And yeah, yeah. I decided to make the cards for Isis and Osiris. So I, I see, see, because Osiris, Isis and Osiris is the basic religious myth of western culture <laughs> yep. i mean it's just sort of the seminal story and i wanted to ask you about oracle decks because you've done a couple now and um you know it's a different like the north lenormand and uh the playing card oracles and things it's a different system and a different almost it's almost a different mechanics to well it isn't see here's the thing divination with cards in the, in ancient times, uh, well, in the you know the medieval Renaissance times when they when they first came to Europe, I mean it's not really ancient. Um, but anyway, anyway, all cards were used for games, including the tarot. In fact, it's, the game was the ancestor of bridge. Um, but also, all cards could be used for divination. There wasn't a, it wasn't like it could, you know cards could you could use any deck. To do divination, so like regular playing card decks with four suits, which are very the most common form, were the most commonly used for divination, more so than the tarot. Um, now, originally, decks of cards that were intended for divination would have the meanings written right on them, so there wasn't any universal meaning for one card. They would just have divinatory meanings written on the cards. 
Um, and even with, there's, with tarot decks like that, like uh, like Beardo's uh, deck that that was created in the 1400s, and um, the uh, what was it called? Vanities of the no something of the vain world. I don't know. Uh, anyway, the, as as time progressed, we start seeing these what they call fortune books, which were books used for for divination, and they would have. You could use any deck of cards in some of these books. Like you use decks of cards, and, you, and the cards would you, you relate to pictures in the book. Like you see the same, like they have pictures of the cards, and then you, you pick two cards, and you find the place in the book where those two cards are illustrated, and then it leads to another page and another page until you finally got to the answer of your question. So, so the cards became a means of finding the mean, you know, finding your fortune in the book. Now, the earliest deck. Like that is considered a, like a, a, a general divinatory deck was a deck of cards created in England in the 1600s, where the, it was basically a fortune book in deck form, uh, where like you know the like the like in the fortune books there's only certain questions that would answer. So you have a list of questions in the beginning. Well, this would have certain cards would have the list of questions, and then certain cards would have the answers and. And you'd go through the cards to get to the answers. Now, shortly after that, they, people started writing books where they had they invented cardomancy, which, in other words, they had books that explained that, like the the two of clubs or whatever, would always have a certain meaning, like try to make the meaning consistent for the cards in the deck. And then, event, see, around that same time, in, so you're coming into the 1700s, and so there's a big outgrowth of engraving and pictures on cards, especially in England, Germany, Holland, all around. And and uh, they started to make cards where they had pictures on them, and that by the end of the 1700s, they were creating decks, which we call oracle decks, which uh, would have a, a like the main, the main part of the card would be a picture that had a divinatory purpose, and there'd be a small insert of a playing card that was supposed to relate to it. So they, instead of writing messages on the card, we just have a picture that you could use and interpret easily. And then you just have a little insert of the of the playing card. And then eventually they just drop the playing card. You, you know, like the Lunar Mon still has a connection to the playing cards, but the, like some of the architects didn't even didn't even bother with the playing card. And no, um, and that well, that got really popular in the 1800s, right? Now, now the thing is, you know how like when people look at the uh, the way Smith wrote, well, her big innovation. It was that she added all these imagery to the pip cards so that you could use it for for divination. But and that's the first, you know, one of the first tarot ever to do that because you know she based it on the Solabusca, which was a Renaissance deck, uh, which had imagery on the pip cards. But most tarots didn't have imagery on the pip cards. But the thing is, all she was doing was what they were already doing with regular playing card decks, which was oracle decks. So she was basically turning the tarot minor suits into an oracle deck. It's it's pretty remarkable this whole this whole transformation and this transmission. Um, I notice in your in your Her Hermes playing card oracle, you you keep the entire deck and you added symbols to the because normally when yeah well there, well there were there are oracle decks with you know fifty two cards and I mean yeah like, they're, they're not all thirty six. See the reason the Lidermont has thirty six cards is because it's based on a standard German playing card deck which only has 36 cards because they don't have the two three four and five so how many cards are in your new york your new new york deck that's 36 36 because that's a standard litter mon it was based on, that was created in new york in the 1880s 
but it was based on the one original Lunderman's from Germany created in the 1840s or 50s. It's it's really very interesting. Um, now I I have to ask you about the Vampire Tarot. Um, yeah. It just was. Of course. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, you, you, if it wasn't you, I you know, because before I was, you know, if it was somebody else. Because there was so, you know, I would have just been like, oh, what is this bullshit? Some, you know. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, some trashy gothic crap. And I, I mean, I'm kind of a goth, but there's trashy gothic stuff. But then I saw yours and I was like, no, that's Robert Place. And so, um, you know, I picked it up and, I, and it's just remarkable how you describe, you know, the connection between the story of Dracula uh, and the tarot and, and, um, just, just the how the pattern plays out in the story of the tarot. Can you speak to that? Can you describe how the yeah? Whole well, well, what, see, the thing is, once I'm a big fan of Dracula myself. Like I have a lot of vampire movies, but I really like the whole classic vampire story. Like, see, vampire got really popular, but then it started morphing into new areas, right? Although some of see some of the things, like see the vampire myth. Uh, it's not so, so much connected to the folklore. It makes use of the folklore of the vampire, but the but the vampire folklore in Eastern Europe is sort of it's not Dracula. Dracula comes out of this uh, out of uh, German Romanticism, and um, these roman it comes out of it was it, the whole that whole vampire image of literature was created by German Romantics in uh, the late 1700s. And what they were basically doing is creating these sort of demon lovers who come and uh, come back to to the to their uh, you know dead lovers coming back to their mistress or whatever. Um, you find lots of poems like that, and then and then it eventually led to uh, literature to to uh, prose with uh, uh, Polidori's The Vampire uh, who, uh, was the first one. So the first one's actually in English, and. Um, but you know Byron and Shelley—they were all influenced by it. I mean, it's a major influence on romanticism. And and things like the original vampires, like in the folklore, they're just stupid. They're 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 almost like zombies. Yeah, they're they're gross too. They stink and they're ugly. And... Yeah, they're dead. You know, they're dead. They smell bad. They're dead. They come out of their coffins, and they're so stupid that all you have to do is protect yourself from vampire is you leave a bunch of beans by the door. And they have, and the vampire has to stop and count the beans, and then the sun starts coming up, and it's going to go back to the grave. And 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 the thing, and the thing about staking a vampire, that was all it was is like, well, he keeps coming up out of the grave, so let's put a stake through him and nail him down to his grave, so he can't get up. <laughs> or sometimes they just turn him over, thinking when he tried to get up, he'd go the wrong way. <laughs> That's that old European practicality for you. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's like they're not Dracula, you know. <laughs> Dracula, see, the, the romantic image was more related to these myths of the moon god, who was the special lover of, of women and, and come in the night. And, you know, like, this is archetypal mythical influence going through it. And and that's why, and so people wonder, you know, what is this with vampires? Vampires are disgusting monsters. Why are these women falling in love with them and stuff? But that was part of the thing from the beginning. They're, they're this mystic lovers. Now, yeah, you, the Dracula story is... connection a little bit more? What okay? You want me to, <laughs> well, what part do you want me to go into? The the moon god part. I I just I think it's very interesting, and it, it I I I think there's a lot to that. 
Well, well, you, well, when you study Jungian literature, you see, you see that there's this sort of archetypal uh, character in a lot of cultures. Just like I was saying, you know, the, like dream, dream maker, you know, dream bringer or whatever. Um, well, so the nighttime is a very special time because that's when people have dreams and when you communicate with the gods. And then it seems like there was a spe- like a special connection with the moon and that women were always connected with the moon because of their menstrual cycles, which, of course, means moon cycle. And, and and how it had to do with their fertility. And so before, we we speculate that before people actually knew about how gestation happened, that they thought that the moon was somehow really important to women having getting impregnated. So, th- so that creates a sort of myth that, the, that women are really impregnated by the moon god or moonlight coming to them. And you see that, and there's re- there's weird references to that in Dracula, like how he comes, he, he sneaks in under the windowsill like moonlight, and you know, like uh, he 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 gleams white, his teeth gleam white in the dark, and you know, he turns into a mist. He's like obviously being described as moonlight. So, and that and that's the that's part of the whole archetype. And I'm not sh- I'm not really sure how much Bram Stoker knew the archetype he just seemed to connect in these things unconsciously it's like again it's like one of these things where like he was just a channel for a lot of the stuff because because you look at all those the books graham stoker wrote and dracula is like oh, way you know it's the best thing he ever wrote you know it's like considered a masterpiece and his other works are you know they're nice but they're not like they're not dracula you know so um uh yeah the, i think i think i think dracula's connected to that and that's why you notice how you only praise on women. Yes. For what? You know, so it's obviously sexual. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and there's a and, connection. And, and then he the... penetrates them. You know, so he penetrates. <laughs> like, well, yeah. like somebody said, Dracula's like sex without sex. You know. Well, it's interesting too, because in some of the vampire myths, like you, the vampires can't have sex. Yeah, they just have. They just bite. Yeah. But but then there's the whole connection between the throat and the genital region, and you know, and the nerves in the human body, and even in Kabbalistic lore, the the Sephira on the tree of life doth connects to the Yisod, the, the the moon, yeah. the, the moon. Yeah, and then I think with blood, you know, and, the, and menstrual blood being the blood that that gives forth life, you know, people actually believe, you know, when they say. Uh, it, you know, your uh, your bloodline or whatever. They really believe that the menstrual blood w- would coagulate into the baby that you initially created a blood. So you know, the blood is the life. That's one of the things in Dracula. So uh, oh, this the, this exchange of blood, like when you like when you read how like he he's forcing um, Mina to drink his blood, and then they come in and they find blood all over her. Uh, her uh, her nightgown and they go unclean unclean you know which is what they say about the menstrual cycle oh i mean there's, there's so many things in there like it just goes back you know it's like it's just filled <laughs> I, I can't even go into it all and you talked a little bit about like uh pamela coleman smith and bram stoker right yeah i did and i think i found out later you know it's like i was basing that a lot of that information on what I could gather from other writers. And then like lately there's been, you know, Mary Greer for one was, was working on this thing for Kaplan from us games and, and writing this book where they're really trying to sort out what happened with uh, Pamela. And she was nice enough to give me uh, the a timeline of Pamela's 
life, which I, so I use that to inform my section on Pamela in the new book. But one of the things that disappointed me about my book on a vampire is that some of the information I have in there with Pamela wasn't exactly accurate. Like I have her with, she she knew Bram Stoker and used to call him Uncle Brammy, but I have her with him at an earlier age than would have been actually possible when I looked at like where she actually was and what the time was. So, um, uh, you know, but she, but she she definitely knew Bram Stoker, and she it's definitely so was influenced. She was definitely influenced by Dracula because like she we have pictures she drew when she was on board a ship going across the Atlantic with Bram Stoker, and and uh, her her friend Edie. Uh, they were doing plays together on the ship, and Bram Stoker was in the plays, and she's drawing pictures of him. And she and she has, and with the captain hat says, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, SS, SS Dracula on his hat, and then or like there's, there's a, you know, they have this trap door on the stage called the Vampire Trap, which is, you see him coming out of it. You know, she's playing around with the idea of him and vampires all the time in the drawing. That's so interesting to see how how the, maybe the the most influential Tarot has this almost family family connection with the most influential horror story in modern culture. Well, also, here's the thing, is that I feel that the strongest influence on on Dracula, besides the whole vampire uh, literature that was coming around, is that he, he, he patterned it on the Grail legend, which it then is, is part of the mystical uh, information from the Renaissance that was influencing the Tarot myth. The Tarot... Wow. The so, so there is a, a connection going back to the original mythology, because wow. you know, because the Grail legend and and the alchemical great work have parallels with each other, and and the and the and the Tarot trumps have parallels with that. I mean, it's it's not like anything is is just based on one thing, but they all influence each other. And see, that's what Wade was picking up on. That's man, that is that's really interesting. So, well, th- uh, think about it. Like, look look at the story of Dracula, right? That like. Jonathan is sent off to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Castle Dracula in Romania, which is like the other side of the world from England, right? And 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 he and he and he goes to this this he goes to, to the castle. And everybody's warning him not to go there. And he goes in there, and then he meets Dracula, and and he and he and he, uh, he sort of spooked out. And he wakes up in the morning, and the castle's empty, like it's totally empty. And then he realizes he has to get out of there somehow and get back to England. Uh, he starts realizing, you know, that there's something amiss here, and then, and then he, and then he gets together with his band of heroes, and they try to get back to Castle Dracula, right? Well, that's to see, like in the Grail legend, Parsifal, uh, who's like the fool, you know, uh, like the Tarot fool, uh, he, 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 bl- he, you know, he becomes a knight uh, uh, of King Arthur, and he blunders his way to, to in some far lands on adventures, and he comes to this castle, the Grail Castle, with the Grail King. And and he and he's invited into the castle and he meets the Grail King and his daughters and this is a big procession and he never he doesn't know to ask for whom does the Grail serve so he doesn't break the curse now the curse is because the the, the Grail King has a cup of blood basically the Grail which has Christ's blood in it he is he he can't die he lives on forever but he has an illness and and he and because he's sick the whole place around is a wasteland. Wow. And, and 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 the see the king and the king's sick, right? But he wants to be he wants to die and and let be let out of the curse. And so to do that, Parsifal has to ask the right question, and then he would get to marry the the king's daughter. 
but he doesn't know that. And then he ends up, he wakes up in the morning and no one's there. It's an empty castle. And he goes back to Camelot and he can't find his way back. And then he, he so the, so Arthur, King Arthur gets together a team of uh, heroes to go send, send them out to find the Grail Castle. Now, uh, you know, uh, Arthur Godling is, is the rich nobleman in Dracula who then, uh, when, when Jonathan comes back and tells him what, what happened and they have to stop, stop the, uh, you know, Dracula, then he gets together the, the heroes, the group, you know, the small group of heroes led by Jonathan, and, and they and they go to back to Castle Dracula to kill him, to, to stop, to take him away from his illness, you know, and, and, you see, and the, everything around Castle Dracula is a wasteland the same way, like it's, you know, I mean, and it's the blood that keeps him alive. I mean, there's so many parallels. It's, That's very it's interesting. Undeniable. Yeah, it, and it's funny because... Because uh, we had a, our last episode, we were talking about the tarot as well, and this story came up in that in that interview. So that it's funny how that happened. Um, we've we've been all over the map with this. I did want to ask you, um, and I want to be respectful of your time, so I don't want to keep you too long. We could we can go on for hours, but I'm sure you've got <laughs> things to do. Uh, I did want to talk about the numbers three and seven, and I I really enjoy um, when. Uh, reading what you have to say and, and hearing what you have to say about this. Can you speak about the significance of those numbers in the tarot? Well, in Neoplatonism, those are very important numbers because um, there's three aspects of the soul and there's seven soul centers, which relate to the seven planets, uh, you know, the ancient planets. And that's and, and, and because of that, that's why... Um, I mean, all Western culture is influenced by that. That's why there's seven notes in our music scale, which I explained before, because Pythagoras created it. Like, in fact, in ancient Greeks, Greek, there was seven vowels, and Pythagoras was credited with adding a seventh vowel to the language. So, uh, like, even though they got the, the idea of an alphabet from the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians didn't have vowels. Vowels are like the musical notes of the, of the uh, language. So the, so the Greeks invented vowels and then Pythagoras is credited with making sure the seven vowels which then were used to denote the seven notes and then what we see that's all through our culture like we have seven days of the week which are named after the seven planets we have seven virtues and seven vices which are which relate to the seven soul centers we have there's seven continents and seven seas and uh, uh, seven sacraments and on and on and on like the, like all western cultures influenced by that idea and then the, the idea of the three parts of the soul goes back to Pythagoras as well but he he was m- most likely influenced by the ancient egyptians and that uh, see plato gets this from pythagoras and he he calls the three parts the soul of appetite the soul of will and the soul of reason as the way it's usually it's translated um the the uh, the 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 uh, the three parts of the soul like see when I say is the soul of appetite the soul of will and the soul of reason most people say oh that's really weird you think there's three souls and these are what they call it. but see that's a part of our culture when you when you realize what he's talking about is body mind and spirit like the soul of appetite is the soul of the body the soul of will is the soul of the mind and then the the, the soul of reason is the soul of spirit so when you say body mind and spirit everybody's got that concept. You see, it's it's part of our Western culture, and just like we have seven days of the week and all these things, we've sort of lost track of all this, right? Now, if you look at the at the tarot and you want to understand the trumps, you, understand, you have to understand there's there's not 22 trumps, there's 21. The fool isn't a trump, really. The fool's unnumbered, and there's 21, just like they're numbered, 21 trumps. When the gets to be, you know, this evolves over the 1400s into this form, 
and and it comes down to us through the Tower of Marseille, the French deck, as 21 trumps. Now, 21 is three times seven, and then when you divide the trumps into three sections, each with seven cards, you'll see that they correspond very nicely to the body, mind, and spirit of the Platonic triple soul. Got it, got it. I mean, I could keep going on with that, but that's the basic structure. Yeah, and you can see that as well in the in the uh, Valentinian, Gnostic, um, Hylic, Psychic, and Pneumatic uh, structure that they have. It seems to align pretty well. Yeah. So, uh, well, also, the see, seven seems to be an important number all through the Tarot. Because if you look at, you know, um, if you look at the minor suits, there's, there's 14 cards in each suit, so it's two times seven. So, uh, it, so then there's... Um, Without the full, there's 77 cards, which is you know, 11 times 7. So so um, 7 seems to be a, a key number in the whole thing, and 3 is definitely the structure of the uh, of the trumps. Cool. Thank you. Janice, do you have anything else? Um, like I said, we can Janice, we can do, you, do, you, do you actually have two heads? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask my girlfriend. Oh, okay. <laughs> do you know you have your video on? No, I didn't know that, but now I do. We've been watching you walk through the through the city. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I don't know how to take the video off here. Anyway, um, yeah, just one question, and that is, um, that's this. Do you prefer Christopher Lee, or um, why is my mind going blank? Bella Lugosi? Yeah, Bella. Who's your favorite Bat Dracula of the two of them? Or Franklin? Oh. Bella. Well- yeah, well, I, I you know, I, I think it's Belagosi is so iconic. You know, the thing is, Belagosi was in the original play, and that's and that's how like the, uh, originally they wanted Lon Chaney to do Dracula for the movie, uh, but they got Belagosi, and the thing, and, and he was Hungarian, and he didn't speak any, he didn't actually speak English, which is why he delivers the line in such a, a strange way. Because he had to memorize each line and then deliver it. You know, it's not like it was a natural English speaker. So, um, so there's there's something about the original Dracula that's really, you know, important. But but there's parts of it that are are dated. But well, see, the thing is, it was one of the first talking films, and. Um, they and it didn't. They didn't only show it as a talking film. They showed it as a silent film also. Um, so it could go either way. But even as a talking film, they back then in the theaters, they used to have, there used to be someone playing the piano to add music to the movie. So, uh, so I think that, so the, so I've seen the best way to watch the original director is that you have to have a music score with it. I think Phil Glass did one, one that was really successful. And also the way he filmed, like, it's not like great use of film. It's like, a, it's, it's like sort of set it up like a stage set and it's almost like you're watching a play a lot of the time. Like, you know, when you're in Castle Dracula, it almost looks like a stage set. You're looking at it from a distance and watching him walk down the stairs from a distance and come to you. It is very much so, like a play. It's totally true. Yeah, so it's it's a strange movie. It's not, you know, it's it's important to the history of film and so it's hard, so it's hard to, uh, you know, compare it to modern movies in a way, right? Like you have to look at it as a historic piece. So uh, and it has a certain charm because of that. Now, um, I think uh, one of my favorite versions of Dracula was the uh, 
the one made for TV with uh, Jack Palance playing Dracula, which not, not many people know about. <laughs> and and then um, also I like the uh, uh, the the one um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula because it's the only one that tried to stay closer to the book where it actually had. Uh, uh, all the characters, like it, you know, it, it had uh, Quincy the cowboy, and you know, like most people going cowboy. What's a cowboy doing in a story? <laughs> but you, uh, when you see when you when you understand, you know, Bram Stoker used to travel to America all the time on tour with the, with the Lyceum Theater, and and he actually knew knew uh, uh, like Buffalo Bill and all these Western characters. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. So like you know, so he basically so Quincy in Jack is based on Jim Bowie. And that's why he has his big Bowie knife. Well, Robert, we just want to—I don't—we want to thank you so much. This has been a fantastic discussion, and um, we really appreciate you giving us your time and your insights, and you know, really your wisdom today. Um, Dom, you want to add anything? Yeah, no, I just—I—I I will just echo what what uh, Jana said. That it's—it was really interesting. We really appreciate it. Where? Um, Where's the best place for people to find what you're doing and what are you doing? Do My you website. Any, your website. Yeah. Yeah. You should uh, go to robertmplacetoreau.com. Great. And are you working on any new new decks? Or what do you have in the works? Well, right now I'm working on two different graphic novels. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, also, you know, I, di- I did the Raziel Tarot, uh, the a special edition of just the majors with Rachel and, and Rachel really wants me to finish, finish it. But we sort of, we sort of got, I did the aces and I sort of got stuck for a while. So I, I'm waiting for more inspiration. But the thing is in the meantime, Rachel and I are working on a graphic novel. Very cool. That's awesome. And and people can find out about how that goes from your website, I assume. Yeah. Well, there's nothing on the website about that right now, but the thing right. is, I, there will be eventually. Also, you, if you really want to stay in touch with me, like follow me on Facebook because I'm always posting pictures and stuff. Cool. I, my Facebook page, I sort of run it like an art magazine, you know, where I put up the artwork I like and or things about the cards or tarot or show some of the artwork I've been doing lately. So it's it's you know I I, I don't you know it's not just the pictures of me and going on vacation or whatever. And what you're eating for dinner. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. Thank you. Thank you again, Robert, very much. Uh, you know what? You know what? We should maybe mention when are you doing that next talk at the Met? Aren't you doing one in September? Yeah, on the, yeah, that's right. It's on uh September twelfth. And it's it's pretty much it's mostly Philip, but there's still three spaces open. Okay. And well we've how we've can- we've got three listeners, so that that's perfect. Yeah, it's great. Okay, <laughs> and so the thing is, um, uh, they if they if they're interested in that, they should email me at alchemicaltarot at aol dot com. Okay, great. And then your classes at the Open Center. Uh, how frequently do those run? And well, I do they- do this like three times a year, and the next one I think is starts in uh, November. Yeah, it starts on November fourteenth. It's like fourteenth, the twenty eighth. And then December fifth, there's three classes in a row. Yeah, because it's a three, a three class at, thing. They, they well, you? you can see that's listed. Um, if you go on my website, you know it's a page where it lists where I'm going to be and things going on. The next big thing I'm doing, I'm going to China in October. I'm going to be teaching at, in Beijing. Wow. 
I did, I did. I, yeah, I was there last year too. We were sort of setting up a regular tarot school in Beijing. That wow! Is, so is there a lot of interest for it there? Yeah, this yeah, it's very, it's really big. Like Rachel and I went last time. Rachel Pollock and I. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time I'm going. And this time I'm going to talk more about the. Uh, I'm going to teach more about the uh, Oracle decks. Wow! Oh, wow! Yeah, that's so cool. Well, you know, I I I I don't want to get off the phone, but I have to because I have to pick my son up. I just want to say thanks again, and I'm looking forward to hearing the finished product here. I'll probably listen to this like three times. Okay, great. All right, take care, guys. Thanks, man. All right, bye. Okay, that was a great interview. Thanks again, Robert. I definitely was not expecting to or planning on going that deep into Dracula, but I'm kind of glad we did. For one, the connection to the Arthurian Grail story was just fantastic, so there was that. You can follow us on Facebook, give us a like, send us a message, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can comment there as well. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you'd like to see in the future from us. We are definitely open to those comments. So there it is. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. 